This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Well, guys, uh, we are in the midst of a, a series on, well, at the end, we're at the end of a series on the church, seven churches of Revelation. And so it's sort of strange to miss the first six churches and then show up for the seventh. And I get dished uh, Laodicea, too, which is one of those things that I don't know, when you grow up in the church, you hear it quite often that the American church is a lot like Laodicea. And I guess there, there's a definite truth woven into that. And I would have to say that is an accurate statement. I'd say we're very vulnerable in Christianity in this country, even in this continent, to losing fire. Many of you know this. It's a phenomenon that takes place in American or North American Christianity. I'm guessing any type of developed civilization. And that is that you can find Jesus and become hot for Jesus and burn for Jesus and then strangely lose that fire. And how does that work? You, you study Christian history and you see these men and women that burned for Jesus and died. Died because of the flame of fire that they represented in this earth. And they don't seem to flag. You don't see Paul just sort of doing this type of a journey through life where he has his cool seasons where he loses sight of Jesus and then he says, oh boy, sorry about that, I need to return. There's a, something that we in this room can identify with. I have, in my own life, I, I'm a student of my own spiritual life and development. And part of that is actually what makes me good at discipling others. And part of it I recognize is, is me. And I need, to, I need to know how I work and not presume that you work the same way. And so there's always a, a little bit of a balance between the two of those. When I, this last year was, had weights within it that were crushing. Uh, I've carried a lot of weight in my life. And the weight this last year, in my mind, intellectually, didn't seem like it should be that heavy. But whatever came against me spiritually this last year was near suffocating at times. Back in the October season when we were closing on the campus, the day we closed, and I think I've shared this with many of you, if not all of you, but the day we closed the campus, about two hours before that, a spiritual something came against my life that felt like, uh, oh, you know, a few tons of bricks set on my shoulders. It was weird. I even intellectually recognized that it was happening, rebuked it, and it was still there. And I carried that with that intensity for about 10 straight days, even after that. And I wouldn't even say that it's fully let up. I've probably got maybe one of the two tons off my shoulders. I still have greater weight on my life than I ever have before. And what happens when you have friction in your soul? Because living Christianity leads to a greater friction than the guy down the road that's rejected Christ. 
Now, the guy down the road that rejects Christ has problems because he doesn't have Christ as a solution. So he has to look to the world and find his solution in other places. A Christian has Christ as a solution but has a greater spiritual friction in their soul because now they're literally heading against the powers of this earth. And it is a harder road to live. It's always important that you tell Christians that up front. It's a harder life. However, Christ is our life in the midst of it, and he's our enabler to carry us from point A to point B, which being the end, the final day, that trumpet blast. Along the way, there are many moments that we all have shared. Most of us don't ever share them out loud, though. We just have them. We experience them where we wonder if we can keep going. And I, by the way, have those. I don't entertain them. Have you ever know the difference between having something go through your head and entertaining it? Uh, and I think it was Martin Luther that talked about you can have uh, birds fly over your head, but that doesn't mean they need to make a nest in your hair. And that's the way the Christian thought life can work. The enemy is going to stick in thoughts a lot. He wants to cool down the heat in our existence. This is his great agenda. And in this culture that we live, we are very susceptible to being cooled off. And unless you know that, unless you recognize that it takes very purposeful living to live on fire. You do not accidentally live on fire. You very purposely choose to be lit by the flame of God every day. And if you don't go to the hearth of God and allow your life to be lit every day, you will find that you will cool very quickly. And the truths that were so crystal clear in your life and in your understanding just days before are suddenly blurry. The number one thing that goes out in our life when we lose heat is light. And light equates biblically to understanding knowledge and basically the way of appropriating what's going on around us. So when the enemy then baits us with a temptation, we no longer see clearly what it is. And we very quickly can give way to something that in our clearer moments, we'd say, no way, not on your life. And the same thing, I mean, that's how every marriage that has ever disintegrated because of adultery happened. You, it didn't happen on the wedding day. They're in love. They're staring into each other's eyes. They see clearly that they love that person. They would never want to do anything to harm that love. But what happened in the meantime? They lost light. One of the things that you recognize in the book of Revelation is light or lampstands is a very important concept. And a removal of a lampstand is a very important concept. In other words, to lose that light or to dim the clarity that the church has is a very, very dangerous thing. So as we sort of embark upon this, this is, this is a fun message. It's not just a dead serious message. At the same time, there's a dead serious undergirding to this. I was in California. In California, by the way, Colorado, it's hard to live on fire. California, it's like doubly hard. I don't know why that is, but it is spiritually dead. And when I was just walking down the streets, you just feel it, a worldliness. I wasn't even talking with anything. I just feel it. Just like I feel more of a worldliness in Fort Collins, Old Town Fort Collins, than I do in Windsor. Now, I don't know if that's just me, and I, it's just like some weird spiritual gift I have of you know, discerning things. I don't know what it is. I feel it, though. I drive through certain towns, it's like, what's that? And so when I go to Old Town Fort Collins, I even tell Leslie on our date night, it's like, going to Old Town Fort Collins, I need to be in ministry mode. When I'm in marriage mode trying to focus on this, I'd rather be somewhere else because I'm distracted by that the whole time. 
And so when I was in Southern California, I was extra aware of a battle and a friction. There was a pressure on my life to say, Eric, you need to just sort of coast. You ever had that? It's just a coast. You've been, you've been exercising the engine, the spiritual engine, a little too much lately, and you don't want to push it. And there was a bait, uh, and it, it comes from a thousand different things that are taking place always in my life. And I remember as I was walking, because I always walk and pray in the early mornings, and I was walking and praying, it was pouring rain on me. Uh, I could see the ocean, though, so it sort of, it offset. And I remember having this thought. I will not allow the devil to take me out of the game. Now, I didn't have any, like, bait towards sin at that exact moment. I just know it's a lethargy that the enemy was trying to work against me. And it was just like, Eric, just take a little of the edge off. Because when you have that edge, that's what gets people riled. If you would just sort of dim a little, you know, just turn down the light. You ever have one of those light switches where you can control it? Just dim it a little. It's when it's bright that it really creates problems. You see all the dust, cobwebs, and everything? Just turn it down a little. And you can feel the bait. And I remember just sensing, because I've been, just so many different things that could distract me. It's like, here's the thought. I am here on this earth for one go-around. I've already used up half of that go-around. Just turned 46, okay? So it's probably about right. Because, you know, Ludies lived to be in their early 90s. I've used up half of that go-around. I have half of it left, and that's if I don't get martyred. I have half of my life left. And this life is short. That's what I can say. 46 years, it's just gone. I got one go around, and the glory of God is at stake. Angels would dream of having a body to do what I am commissioned to do. I have seen clearly the cross of Christ. I know what he's done. I cannot waste my life here on this earth. I must spend my life and every bit of it for the glory of my king. I have one go around. What does that mean? And so that was my prayer time. The rest of my time in California, God, what does that mean for me? I don't want to just jump to a conclusion, just hop on a plane and go somewhere because it's more spiritual to be somewhere else because it feels like you're doing missionary work. I want to burn for Jesus right where I'm at every moment, whatever that looks like. And that isn't an easy choice because it's easier if I just dim a little and I could still be a Christian, still end up in heaven. You know the logic. Why do I need to be hot? Why can't I be lukewarm. You see, I still have a little heat, and that's, of course, leads us to the church at Laodicea. But before we get there, we're going to lay some foundation stones in place. Swimming with the Dolphins, a study of a church on fire, the fires of affection. So one of the things we're going to describe today, because it's hard when you talk about, in in the book of uh, Revelation, when it talks about the church at Laodicea, and many of you are familiar with it, I'll read it through in just a bit, but it talks about the fact that there's hot, and there's cold, and there's lukewarm, and the church at Laodicea is uh, lukewarm, and that is detestable to God. So if you want to answer the question I laid out earlier, why can't I just dim it a little, turn down the flame a little, and coast? Well, a good answer to that is it's detestable to God. Isn't that a great answer? You see, most of us don't think that way. You see, we're Laodicean in our mindset. It's okay to be lukewarm. Everyone else is. 
However, the church of Jesus Christ was never intended to be lukewarm. So when we talk about warmth or heat, the heat that is in reference is a heat of zeal or passion of intentionality for the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to call that the fires of affection. And so I have some different terms for that because all of us respond to different language. But warmth of affection. So when you think about your relationship with Jesus Christ and you were to put a heat index on it, at what level are you burning? Are you fervent with your love? Are you showcasing that in the way you live, in, the, in the, even the brightness of your face and your countenance? Because when you are getting married to someone, it's, it's funny, but it's hard not to smile. And uh, you cry, you do all sorts of things on that day. I mean, you're just extra emotional. Well, it's warmth is what it is. It's an internal warmth of affection. That is a first love. And that isn't supposed to fall away. That is meant to burn. Now, many of us are like, well, I don't know how to keep it going. That's the problem. I don't know how to stoke the fires, which is part of why we even exist. And that's called discipleship. Here's a log Here's the hearth, stick that in and keep it burning. You see, you have to learn the arts of burning. Learn the art of keeping that warm. Fervor, zeal, verve. I like the word verve. I thought that was a fun one to throw in there. There's something that's living in here. Many of us have right thinking up here. We even think radical thoughts. But we don't live radical in here. You see, radical needs to come out the fingertips. It needs to come out the toes. It needs to act. It can't just think and reason and say, I believe that God demands all of a person. We must surrender everything. Everything in me belongs to God and then live the way everyone else does. You see, if it's true, if you really have that heat index, if there really is a warmth within, then it animates this body. If you really love someone, what do you do? You move in to kiss them. If you really love someone, what do you do? You express it in affection, in shows of worship. You even say, you are beautiful. You say something, you do something, you act it out. This is the warmth. The unabashed father. So when we look at the biblical framework for this, we talk about warmth. Some of us have this idea of a stodgy God because we've been a part of a stodgy church. And of course, Stodgy church equals stodgy God in our mindset. However, it's interesting, but Jesus introduces us to the Father. So you can see in and through the life of Jesus, who actually grabbed a cord and you know, turned over money, tables, money changers' tables in the temple, that there's a passion and then there's a zeal in Jesus, which reveals the Father. The Father has verve. He has a warmth of affection. He has fire of affection within him, which ironically is what led him to send forth his son in the first place. This is not a small thing in the kingdom of heaven. But when we look at Jesus's portrayal of the father, when he shares the story of the prodigal, do you remember that story? This young man who's in the house, who has everything, all the warmth of the house, all the beauty of the house, all the riches of the house, yet takes that, squanders it. How does the father respond? What you see is a warmth of affection. The way I've always described it is he's fogging up the windows. He's longing for the return. What is that? That's warmth. He's longing for the return of that son. And that when his son returns, how does he respond? He responds with something. And even the story that Jesus shares 
is shocking to the culture in which he was sharing it. Because a dignity demanded, especially elder men, that you don't run. And yet the story Jesus shares of this father that is longing, Jesus is giving, in a sense, a hyperbolized understanding to his audience to say, you want to know how much the father loves you. And he shares this story. The man, well, I'll just read it. And he arose and came to his father, speaking of the prodigal. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. There's a warmth there. A man is willing to throw dignity to the wind. I don't care about dignity. I don't care about the rules of society. He expresses his love with movement. The affectionate woman, and it should say women, truly, because we have the Marys at the grave. And remember, they're coming back uh, to the grave on early that uh, first day of the week, and they see that the stone is rolled away. And then as they're going to tell the apostles, it says, as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, rejoice. Have you ever thought about what a strange statement that is? The first words that Jesus said to the Marys. So this is the first ones to see him risen from the dead. And what does he say? Rejoice. That's his greeting. What an odd statement. Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. That the mental picture there showed a warmth and a beauty of affection that I don't exactly know if we share always. I'm not saying we haven't had our moments, but when it comes to worship time that we have in here, do we have this? Do we see the risen Lord? Do we hear the voice from heaven that says, do you see it? Rejoice, this word Cairo actually means to leap, to go upward, spring up. It is the essence of what we do in response. Do you see it? Do you behold it? And what is worship but to fall prostrate? And what do they do? They hold him by the feet and worship him. That's something special there. That's a verve. That's a warmth of affection. There's a heat index here. The fervent apostle. So... I've shared this story before. In fact, I even Googled it this week uh, to see if I could find it in the original form of Martyr's Mirror. And you know what I keep getting every time I do it is all my references to it. So it's like, great. I don't need those. Uh, but when I, I, I received a book called Martyr's Mirror. I don't remember how I got it. It was this huge, thick book about all the martyrdoms. It's a lot like uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, just bigger. And... It's written in like the 1500s or so. And there was a little footnote in it that described Peter. And some of you have heard me talk about this. It's one of my favorite stories because it changed me when I was a young, uh, young uh, Christian. And it said that Peter often cried. And when a cock would crow, he would, he would cry. And there were other times that he would just break down and cry and the, the other saints didn't know why. So one bold saint came up to him uh, one day and said, Peter, why do you cry? And his response was, desiderio domini what he said. That's the Latin translation of it. That's what got passed down in this book. Desiderio Domini, which translated means because I dearly long to be with my Lord. Now, when I heard that, I remember it was a measurement of my own heat index when I heard that. Here's Peter, this big hulking fisherman, and he's weeping. Why? Because he dearly longs to be with Jesus. Why do I have to be in this earth anymore, God? Could I be with you 
There's work to be done, Peter. You still must stay here, but Jesus, I just want to be home with you. Some of you know what that feels like. Usually we feel it in an extra measure when we're going through difficulty. But how about just life? That's the heat that I'm talking about. It's a desiderio. It's a desiderio domini. It's a dear, intense, fervent longing to be with him, to know him, to be found in him. It's the same thing that moved Paul the Apostle. Annie and the Dolphin Adventure. So on Tuesday, uh, we were getting caught up with our Bravehearted Media team, so we hadn't seen each other for quite some time. And so we were doing a quick debriefing as we were going around, and we got to Annie Weshi. Annie Weshi is... Uh, She's been a very close-knit part of our life as a family for, I don't want to say decades, but 12 years since you've even been living out here. And uh, one of my favorite things about Annie is her storytelling. I oftentimes say, Annie, could you tell that story again? And for whatever reason, she has some quality. I don't know that she knows she has it, but because uh, when I asked if she could share something this morning, she... Uh, was a little awkward and uncomfortable about it. Uh, but I said, no, it, it's great. I, I really want, I don't want to share her story. It's that good. It's really good. And you have to realize, I was preparing for this message when she shared this little story. And it moved me. It really did, even though uh, I don't know that it should have. Uh, it did. And so, Annie, would you mind coming up and sharing uh, a little bit of what you shared with us on Tuesday morning? This is good. <laughs> Eric asked if I'd be willing to talk this morning, and I said, maybe. <laughs> uh, but this is actually really fun. It's a little strange to fit it into a sermon, but I'm really excited about how it's going to fit into the sermon. Uh, over the Christmas break, I went home to visit my family, and then afterwards, my Aunt Barbara and my mom and I uh, they made it possible as a gift uh, to me and for all three of us to celebrate some very significant birthdays in their life. They made it possible for us to go on a cruise to the Caribbean. Never been on a cruise before, wasn't sure what that would be like, but in the months leading up to preparing, I was looking online at where we'd be going and what we could do, the different possibilities of where we could go, and they have things called excursions. And uh, My Aunt Barbara had said, you know, maybe pick one or two, you pick. I knew right away what I wanted to do. I mean, I've been dreaming about this since I was a little girl. And since I was little, I have loved dolphins, absolutely loved them. I collected little figurines all over my room and grew up with Flipper and dolphin movies and absolutely loved it. So the idea of swimming with the dolphins was like a life, lifelong goal, maybe, which is a little strange to say, but... Uh, <laughs> I was so excited that it was even a possibility. So I'm looking online at the different options, and now I'd heard a few people who had, like, swum, swum with the dolphins, and uh, they got to get in waist deep and, like, pet them and throw them a ring, and I was like, no, 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 no. If we're going to do this, I want to, like, grab onto the fin and take off. I want to really swim with a dolphin. So I'm looking and reading the different ones, and then I have to be honest with you, I watched one that had a promo video, and I cried I was sitting alone in my apartment looking at the different options and all of a sudden I was so deeply moved I cried. I'm like, this is the one, this is the one. So I told my, my Aunt Barbara and my mom, I found it, it's amazing, you have to do it with me. Which they were like, we have to? And I said, yeah, it's a lifetime, once in a lifetime opportunity, you have to do it with me. So they did. Uh, 
fast forward, we're on this cruise and the day arrives and I am just like smile plastered on my face for breakfast. I cannot wait. I mean, this is amazing. I can't believe this opportunity is here and I get to do this. So we get off the ship and we're in this waiting area where we're waiting for our bus. And uh, I'm looking around and everyone's acting like it's a normal day. I'm like, we're in the dolphin experience waiting area. We get to swim with dolphins today. And everyone's like hot and just chilling. And my, my mom and my aunt had, had excitement, but I think it was on my behalf that they were as excited. And then all of a sudden I spy these two little girls and I'm like, they get it. They get it. So I go over to them and I'm like, hi girls. And they're like, hi. And I said, are you going to swim with dolphins today? And they said, yeah, are you? And I said, yes. I said, isn't this amazing? And they go, yeah. And they start jumping up and down. And I wanted to, but I didn't. Uh, and then I said, you know what? I am so excited. And I think I'm going to be so happy when I do this. I'm probably going to cry. And they're like, yeah, yeah. So uh, the driver comes up and said, all right, Dolphin Experience Group, we're ready to go. And all of a sudden, I feel these two little hands, and they had grabbed onto my hands. So I was like, oh, this is the best. And apparently, their grandpa had said, hey, hey, follow her, stick with her. She, she's, she's into this. <laughs> so I had these two little girls go with me, and they got it. Like, they were the only ones that matched my level of excitement. Fast forward again, we arrive at the place. It's absolutely beautiful. It's right on the ocean, and it's a saltwater enclosure. And every step of the way, I'm like, keep your cool. This is just calm down. You're a grown adult. But we stop into the place, or we walk into the place, and this dolphin shoots up out of the water. And I just lose it. I'm like, this is so beautiful. This is amazing. And I'm like, okay, calm down, calm down. Because no one else is matching that excitement. So I'm kind of making a scene. And uh, then we sit down and we get our orientation on the hand signals. So we got trained. I'm like probably like a level one dolphin trainer now. Um, I could teach you later the different uh, hand signals because that's how you communicate with the dolphins. And we got our life vests. And I'm just like beside myself with excitement. And the trainers kind of can pick up on that vibe. And they're like, you, you first. Come over and get your life jacket. Okay. <laughs> So I get the life jacket, and then uh, we got our hand signal drill, and then we're walking. You have to walk around these different enclosures uh, to get to the place where you get in the water. And again, I'm telling myself, okay, calm down. Like, this is, this is a little much, you know? And then I start to cry. I'm like, oh, okay, pull yourself together. So I'm pep-talking the whole way around. I finally calm myself down, and two feet away, this dolphin, like, comes right up at the water, talks to me, starts clicking and whistling, and I lose it. I'm like, you're beautiful. <laughs> oh my goodness. And my mom kept turning around. She's like, honey, embrace every moment. I am. <laughs> so then we get down into the water. There were maybe, uh, maybe like 10 or 12 of us in the group, and they, they uh, had us each do several different things, and dolphins get bored really quickly, so they don't do, you know, everyone doesn't kiss the dolphin and then everyone dances with the dolphin and then so you mix it up well I wasn't getting picked and everyone's going and I'm like it's all right it's all right my turn is coming my turn is coming and then finally the lady looks at me and she goes you ready for this Annie and I'm, I'm so ready and she goes I could tell I could tell so maybe she saved me for last but uh, they had us swim out into this large pool and uh, all by yourself you swim out there 
And then she gives the signal, and you do your hand signal. And this dolphin flies through the water, cuts around behind you, flips over, and they're so smart and kind. They wait till you have both hands on, and then he just takes off. And you, it's called a belly ride, and, and you're just soaring through the water. Um, absolute thrill. And they took pictures, and everyone who sees them is like, I can picture you as a kid when they <laughs> see these pictures because my smile was completely unrestrained. I was over the moon happy. Uh, we got back and I, of course, tears just kept coming all the whole while, even after getting to do it. We said goodbye, um, <clears throat> we're walking back and again I'm crying, finally we get on the bus and they said, we just need to wait a few minutes, we're waiting for one more person. And I'm just basking in the excitement and thrill of what just happened and that we had that opportunity that they even have a setup where you can do that. These, these animals are amazing. It just makes me marvel and wonder at God as our creator and what he invested into this creation of his. Well, all of a sudden this guy gets on the, the bus and uh, he is like super excited. And he's probably in his 60s and he's bouncing up and down. I'm like, yeah, I feel that way too. We're the only two people bouncing on the bus. Well, turns out he had done the swimming and he leapt out of the water, ran to the front desk, said, I want to pay to do that again, is there time? And he ran back and did it one more time and got on the bus. And I thought, had I known, <laughs> I would have been right there with you, buddy. But uh, it was absolutely amazing. So I've been joking that one of my dreams was fulfilled. And now my new dream is to do it again. <laughs> Did you guys see why that caught my attention this week? That's it. I, what's funny is I've made fun of people for getting all emotional about dolphins. That exact issue, because we were watching Dolphin Tale and they're crying over these dolphins. I mean, I love dolphins, don't get me wrong, but it's like, come on, you know? Uh, however, when Annie shared that, first of all, that was great, Annie. That was you, just a master storyteller, it was wonderful. But it caught something that I feel like can, can wane inside of me. And that is, I get to know Jesus. Do you, do you realize? And you look around, and everyone's just sort of like Grandpa. And they're like, what's the big deal? And the little kids get it. Isn't that a whole new way of looking at why God invites the little children? The little kids get it. And we, as we get older and grayer, we lose... The verve. We lose how precious this is. And Jesus says, hey, guys, you're not just supposed to go to swim with the dolphins. You're supposed to recognize how significant this is. So what I want to do is I want to transfer this into an understanding of, in the book of Revelation, what causes someone to be alive? And so we're going to look at sort of a framework, and I'm going to build it on something we're going to call the consecrated ear. In and through the scriptures, and I, since I missed the first six of this, it could have been taught in depth. I don't know. I'm going to go through it simply, but I think it's, it'll be a good tie-in to all the churches because there's one similarity between, well, there's multiple similarities, but there's one key similarity or phrase that is associated with every single one of the churches, and it has to do with the ear. So in the Old Testament, uh, in the, there's a Bible reading process that everyone in the church is going through, and it included, I think, uh, even this scripture this week. 
Then shalt thou kill the ram and take of his blood. So what we're dealing with here is Aaron, the first high priest, and all the priests are going through a God-assigned consecration process. If they're going to do the work of the temple and they're going to deal with uh, all the sacred duties of working within the temple of Jehovah God, then they need to be set apart and consecrated for it. So consecration, the word itself, is with separation. And so it's separated out for a very special purpose. So you have to realize when I say the consecrated ear, it's an ear, the right ear, that is separated out where someone says, this ear is no longer my own, it belongs to God or to someone else. And so they're going through this process. Then shalt thou kill the ram and take of his blood and put it upon the tip of the right ear of Aaron and upon the tip of the right ear of his sons and upon the thumb of their right hand and upon the great toe of their right foot and sprinkle the blood upon the altar around it. It's a strange concept. Most of us would never think of doing something like this. Sounds rather gross, too. However, it's very symbolic. Of course, it's a symbol of the new covenant that we have with Jesus Christ. And when we enter into a covenant with Jesus Christ, it's not the blood of bulls, goats, rams. It's the blood of Jesus that is literally smeared upon our life. We are being set apart to do what? To do the work of the temple of God. This is the temple. To live life as a Christian. And what do we give him? Three key things. An ear, a thumb, and a toe. Ear is where you hear. This is where obedience comes from. If you don't know the command, you can't respond to it. You hear the command because you have an ear to hear it so that you can do it. This is control. The thumb is a symbol of strength is the right. Right thumb is a symbol of control. Toe is where you go in life. God says, are you willing to give up your life? This is a symbol of your life. So then in Leviticus 8, we actually see the process of this. And he slew it, and Moses took of the blood of it and put it upon the tip of Aaron's right ear and upon the thumb of his right hand and upon the great toe of his right foot. In Exodus 21, we see, and this is just before the consecration of the priest, we actually see, in a sense, the consecration of a servant. This is a really interesting story. Many of you know this, but I want you to now tie it in with what I just said. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And this is the concept in the Old Testament, what's known typically as the bondservant. One who is set free and can go his own way. But because of one very specific thing, he chooses not to. What is that? Love. Because of love, he says, here's my life forever. You see, we have been set free at the cross. But what Jesus is looking for are bond servants. Ones that are set free and then out of love come unto him and say, pierce my ear. My ear is now yours. That is the heat that is oftentimes missing in the church of Jesus Christ. We are set free and we know doctrinally that we are and we agree doctrinally that Jesus' blood shed actually sets us free, but we have not out of love turned unto him and said, pierce my ear. And so this is where revelation comes in. 
The two sorts that bear the strange earmarkings. It's, it's odd to think that there are earmarkings uh, in and amongst those in the Bible. But we have bondservants and priests of Jehovah. Ironically, the very description of what we are in the New Testament. We are priests and we are servants. And very specifically, bond servants. The Revelation. So when we look at the book of Revelation, who is it for? Well, let's read the very beginning of Revelation and let's see. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants. Now, Dan McConaughey will appreciate this. This is from the NASB. I didn't put it up there because I knew Dan would probably stand up and go, yeah. Uh, but this is NASB because all the other ones say just servant. And so, But this is what I grew up studying. And so I remember going, it says bondservant. And then I had to go to the NASB to get it out. It's very important that it says bondservant here too for what we're about to see because the bondservant is the one who has yielded his ear. It ties in with Exodus 21. It actually makes sense. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. So who is the book of Revelation for? Who is the revelation of Jesus Christ for? It's for the bondservants, those that have an ear consecrated to him. Now, as you begin to recall the first six churches, there's a line that is always in that, which refers to the bondservant's ear. It's for the love-bought bondservants of Jehovah, those that are a fiery flame of affection for their God. The churches in Revelation... Ephesus, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Smyrna, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Pergamos, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Thyatira, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Sardis, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Philadelphia, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. The church that loses its warmth. And yes, you will see it in the church at Laodicea, the same exact statement. And what's interesting, look at this statement. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. So it's not just that Ephesus should hear what the, what the Spirit says to Ephesus. It's let him that has an ear hear what the Spirit says to all the churches. The Spirit is saying something to all the churches, and we that are bondservants that have an ear that is smeared and pierced, we are to hear this so that we can respond to it. The church that loses its warmth. Revelation 3. And the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed with, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him. And he, he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's a lot in that. And there's so much dynamic that we could go into in this that it makes it difficult to give a simple sermon on this church because there's so many parallels with our modern day that we could take one little attribute, not including the fact that we could just study the names of Jesus revealed in this, which are absolutely profound. However, I'm going to focus just on the heat index today. This is where I want us to focus because I really do feel that to go with a broad brush on this, we would miss a very particular application. It would appear through different ways of uh, looking, because we don't know a lot about Laodicea. We know that Paul wrote uh, about Laodicea and actually wrote a letter to Laodicea that we have no record of, so obviously it was not canon, but was a letter that was written to the Laodiceans, and there was no mention of it being an unhealthy church. In other words, something seems to have happened in this church. And it actually appears even in history that it started out strong and waned and became lukewarm. And as a result, there's something in me that sees a direct parallel because Laodicea was an extremely wealthy city. And as a result, it could lean on its own wealth instead of God. Very similar to what we struggle with here in North America. Charles Spurgeon, he, he has, I have two big quotes from Charles Spurgeon in this, which I think will give a wonderful overview of Laodicea. And Charles Spurgeon is just so eloquent that I was like, you know what? I'm going with it. It's just great. It's a wonderful enunciation. No scripture ever wears out. The epistle to the church of Laodicea is not an old letter which may be put into the wastebasket and be forgotten. Upon its page still glow the words, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This scripture was not meant to in instruct the Laodiceans only. It was a has a wider aim. The actual church of Laodicea has passed away, but other Laodiceas still exist. Indeed, they are sadly multiplied in our day, and it has ever been the tendency of human nature, however inflamed with the love of God, gradually to chill into lukewarmness. The letter to the Laodiceans is above all others the epistle for the present times. I should judge that the church at Laodicea was once in a very fervent and healthy condition. Paul wrote a letter to it which did not claim inspiration, and therefore its loss does not render the scriptures incomplete, for Paul may have written scores of other letters besides. Paul also mentions the church at Laodicea in his letter to the church at Colossae. He was therefore well acquainted with it, and as he does not utter a word of censure with regard to it, we may infer that the church was at that time in a sound state. In process of time, it degenerated, and cooling down from its former ardor, it became careless, lax, and indifferent. Perhaps its best men were dead. Perhaps its wealth seduced it into worldliness. Possibly its freedom from persecution, engendered carnal ease, or neglect of prayer made it gradually backslide. But in any case, it declined till it was neither cold nor hot. Lest we should ever get into such a state, and lest we should be in that state now, I pray that my discourse may come with power to the hearts of all present but especially to the consciences of the members of my own church. May God grant that it may tend to the arousing of us all. Boy, it, even though that was a long time ago, it's like, yeah, amen. That's exactly what I'm thinking this morning too. What happened in Laodicea? Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Jesus is giving the parable, some people call it of the sower, some people call it the soils, and some people call it of the seed. 
doesn't matter what you call it. It's the sower who threw the seed into the soils and some seed, one I should say some soil, one soil grabbed it. But there were other soil, soils that could not or did and then lost it. We have this one soil that is amongst thorns. And here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say that the most likely form of soil that we struggle with is this one. There's other soils where we're like, oh, I have no relationship to that. However, it's very easy to allow thorns into our soil in our life here in America. Now, he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, listen to this, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. Now, there are so many things that can beat us down. There's so many cares. There's so many opportunities for care. Those are just life. How you appropriate those cares is very, very important. Jesus says, be careful for nothing. It's one way of saying it. We typically understand is be anxious for nothing. But basically, have no care for anything. Now, he uses the same word and says in a different context, but for the glory of God and for the souls of others. You are supposed to care for that. You're supposed to be anxious for others that they would know Jesus. That's a completely different thing. So what we interpret this as is no self-centered care. That's the care that kills you. When you're caring about your own bank account, when you're caring about how you're looking in society, what you are coming across like, you're burdened with the cares of this life. That will choke out the seed, and the result is you become unfruitful. You lose the light And no longer are you sensitive to the Spirit. And as a result, you're vulnerable to the powers of darkness overcoming you and thorns overgrowing that soil instead of what was supposed to come up from that seed. The other side of this is the the deceitfulness of riches. Riches are deceitful. They have a deceitful dimension to them. They will lie. They will tell you that once you have them, your problems will go away. And if you will have enough of it, then you can serve God more abundantly. We've all heard this statement. It does not mean that riches in themselves are sin, but there is a lie that gets associated with those riches that we oftentimes get baited towards, and it's the deceitfulness of riches that is the crux. You could have riches and be fine, but if you are buying into the deceitfulness, it will destroy you and choke out the life. This is very likely what happened in Laodicea. They had life, they had the seed, but it got choked out, and Jesus is giving us enunciation of that right here. The danger of being cool. Now, in the past, I've actually utilized that in various ways because it's funny because the word cool was a, a word to describe being hip, being you know, in vogue, and it's actually the very word in Scripture that would mean lukewarm and what God spews out of his mouth. And so it's sort of a fun way to say, I don't know that you really want to try and be cool. But the danger of being cool. This is that other quote from Spurgeon. I tell you what, this is, this is powerful stuff. The condition described in our text is secondly one of mournful indifference and carelessness. They were not cold, but they were not hot. They were not infidels, yet they were not earnest believers. They did not oppose the gospel, neither did they defend it. I want you to listen closely as we go through this. Because we oftentimes fall within the middle territory in our own life. In other words, we can lose the passion and the heat for sharing the gospel with others. And that would be one definition of lukewarm. In other words, it's not that you're against the gospel being preached, but you're also not preaching it. What are you doing? Well, I'm just sort of holding on to it for myself. 
You see, that's the middle territory. That's the territory that is lukewarm. You see, it's better if we're actually in sin and we know we're not godly, because why? We can be convicted of that. We can repent of that. But when you think you're godly, yet not living in a way pleasing to God, it is a very difficult nut to crack. So they were not infidels, yet they were not earnest believers. They did not oppose the gospel, neither did they defend it. They were not working mischief, neither were they not doing any great good. They were not disreputable in moral character, but they were not distinguished for holiness. They were not irreligious, but they were not enthusiastic in piety, nor eminent for zeal. They were what the world calls moderates. They were of the broad church school. They were neither bigots nor Puritans. They were prudent and avoided fanaticism, respectable and averse to excitement. Good things were maintained among them, but they did not make too much of them. They had prayer meetings, but they were very, there were very few present, for they liked quiet evenings at home. When more attended the meetings, they were still very dull, for they did their praying very deliberately and were afraid of being too excited. They were content to have all things done decently and in order, but vigor and zeal they considered to be vulgar. Such churches have schools, Bible classes, preaching rooms, and all sorts of agencies, but they might as well be without them, for no energy is displayed and no good comes of them. They have deacons and elders who are excellent pillars of the church if the chief quality of pillars, is to, pillars be to stand still and exhibit no motion or emotion. They have ministers who may be angels of the churches, but if so, they have their wings closely clipped, for they do not fly very far in preaching the everlasting gospel. And they certainly are not flames of fire. They may be shining lights of eloquence, but they are certainly not burning lights of grace, setting men's hearts on fire. In such communities, everything is done in a half-hearted, listless, dead-and-alive way, as if it did not matter much whether it was done or not. It makes one's flesh creep to see how sluggishly they move. I long for a knife to cut their red tape to pieces and for a whip to lay out about their shoulders to make them bestir themselves. Things are respectably done, and the rich families are not offended. The skeptical party is conciliated, and the good people are not quiet, quite alienated. Things are made pleasant all around. The right things are done, but as to doing them with all your might and soul and strength, the Laodicean church has no notion of what that means. They are not so cold as to abandon their work or to give up their meetings for prayer or to reject the gospel. If they did so, then they could be convinced of their error and brought to repentance. But on the other hand, they are neither hot for the truth nor hot for the conversions nor hot for holiness. They are not fiery enough to burn the stubble of sin nor zealous enough to make Satan angry nor fervent enough to make a living sacrifice of themselves upon the altar of their God. They are neither cold nor hot. What is your heat index? For all of us in here, I can't tell you what your heat index is. It's one of those internal thermometer things that you can see. And the Spirit of God would love to shine a light on our thermometers this morning and show us where we're at. It doesn't mean you haven't been hot. To acknowledge that you're lukewarm or cooling off does not mean you haven't been hot in the past. It's not like some confession that you've always been this way. It's a statement of where you're at and where you should be. To move forward in heat, you must acknowledge that you've cooled. You must turn up the temperature gauge. You must say, no more of this. If you have been keeping your furnace too low and your water is coming out warmish instead of hot, what should you do? You should go to that furnace and turn it up. There's an action that is needed. When we do not supply the necessary repentance and the action following something like this, we will remain cold and actually get colder. 
It's time to swim with the dolphins. Now imagine I were to say that to you and you had an Annie mentality towards swimming with dolphins. Because for me, to be honest, I would be fine for the rest of my life not swimming with a dolphin. I know I feel sort of bad after Annie's thing on that because I feel like grandpa in the story. However, if swimming with the dolphins was replaced with knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, spending every day with Jesus, communicating Jesus with this world, revealing his glory to the lost, and I say, hey, guys, we've all been personally invited, everyone in this room, and you could say, everyone? Like, did it say that on the invitation? Yes. I just got it. It said, everyone that's in the building that wants to come can join Jesus. Every single one of us can do the work with him. I mean, like, with him. He'll be with us, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Till the end of the age, we can all go. We can all do this. You don't want to be grandpa in that situation. You see, the Holy Spirit is holding out his hands. Which ones of us are going to run up with a little leap in our step and say, I'm going. That's the life I want. I want heat. Don't accept doctrinal accuracy as a replacement for temperature in your soul. Life is what God is after. He's not just after head knowledge for any of us. And some of us in here are more well-educated in Christianity than most people out there. We know the stuff up here. We've even lived it. We even understand heat. We even know what it's like to get teary-eyed over Jesus. However, something has been lost. And that's something you need to go after. It's time to swim with the dolphins. Are you tearing up over the opportunity? Or are you more business as usual? Oh, it's time to get up and go to, the, go to church, kids. Or is there heat? Hey, guys, let's go after Jesus. We have one life to live. One opportunity on this earth to do it right. I can't figure out one good reason why we wouldn't take advantage of it. All I can come to in all my logic and deduction is, you know what? I need to use that time well. And if I had a choice between being hot, lukewarm, or cold, I'm choosing hot. And I'm guessing most of you are with me. So, what do we need to do to be hot? The life of Christ awaits. As it goes in Christianity, many of you have heard me enunciate how the gospel works, but you in and of yourself, in your own frame, your own body, your own mind, intellect, heart, capacity, cannot be hot for Jesus. So after all that message, now I just give that. You see, you have to put off that old way of living, which is dependent upon your own faculties. You need to put off the old life, die to it, give it up, and give your life to Jesus. It's the equivalent of submitting your ear, your right thumb, and your right big toe. Jesus, I can't do this without you, so I separate myself from that way of living unto your way of living. And we say, Jesus, take this life. And what he does is he clothes it in himself which makes us fit for heaven. And then, in Christ, we come unto the Father. And he says, ask the Father for the Holy Spirit. The fervor, the life of God to enter into you. And then, this body, which is clothed in Jesus, now becomes the clothing for the life, the heat, the fire, the very affections that sent Jesus to that cross in the first place, now lives in us. And so you have access to the fire as a believer. Whew. Blow upon it. 
allow it to catch a flame. So the life of Christ awaits. Let's look at the fervor and the warmth of affection of Jesus. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Titus, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. A people that is on fire. That word zealous translates as burning. Burning with passion. Burning with passion to reveal Jesus unto this world. To do the good works of the kingdom. God, use me. I don't want to waste a moment on this earth. I have one opportunity to swim with the dolphins. I'm not going to pass it up. I'm going to soak it up, enjoy every moment of it. What did Jesus say? Rejoice. Rejoice. Don't you know how good this is? Take my hands, guys. Let's get in the water. Oswald Chambers, it was in one of his, my utmost for his highest. I don't remember which one it was. But it was something like this. If you ever find that you have a bad attitude, don't become a victim to your bad attitude. Say, I just have a bad day. He says, grab yourself by the scruff of the neck and shake yourself until you get rid of that bad attitude. I'd always been a victim to my bad attitude, and then he had to come along and say that. That took energy and investment, and I couldn't give way to self-pity. And that's exactly right. The kingdom of heaven allows for no self-pity. I don't care how difficult your life is right now. I don't, don't blame your lukewarmness on any of your circumstances. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, ought not to tear you down. Jesus has given you a means to live the life. The enemy is working overtime to try and dim and cool you off. So as a result, grab yourself by the scruff of the neck. Grab it, yank it, and don't let go until something changes. I don't know what, it, what you need. I just know how I usually handle seasons like that when I begin to recognize, whoa, 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 I'm getting cool. You see, I can preach accurate messages. I can do things externally and still recognize that I'm starting to cool within. You're going to be the first one to know that. Don't wait for the world outside to go, what happened to you? But the moment you begin to recognize a diminishment, you've lost the, the smile of swimming with the dolphins. You've lost the desiderio, the weeping over the fact that you're not with Jesus and you just want to be with him. If you're missing that today, reach out and grab Jesus. Say, Jesus, I'm not letting go until I get that back. If that means getting up early and just going after him, finding him, if that means getting on your knees separating out for a day, go up to the mountains and get alone and say, Jesus, I'm not going to live down there in the flatlands without you. I need you. And whatever it takes, I'm willing to do it. So please, please don't let me go cold. I want to be hot and I want to die that way. I don't want to be one of those sad stories that fell away. I want to live this thing. The reason we hear about the church of Laodicea is not so that we can just sort of lick our wounds and go, oh boy, just another church that went down the drain. It's so that we can have a warning. Why do we know about Ananias and Sapphira? Not so that we could be knocked over dead too, but so that the fear of God would come upon us. Why do we hear these things? So that we would recognize the significance. So that we would recognize that lukewarmness is not delightful to God. 
He desires us to be hot. So, let's respond in the way that God leads us. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.